Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Katya Andreessen. Katya is the Chief Digital and Analytics Officer of Cigna, a global health service company working to make healthcare simple, affordable, and predictable, earning roughly $174 billion annually. Katya has a breadth of experience across industries and disciplines, including serving as an adjunct professor at American University, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Strategy Officer at Network for Good, Chief Executive Officer at Cricket Media, and most recently, Senior Vice President, Card Customer Experience at Capital One. In this interview, we discuss Katya's impressive and diverse career path and the insights she's drawn from it along the way. She begins with an overview of Cigna's business and the two sides of her purview as Chief Digital and Analytics Officer. She covers the company's broader data strategy, the way she assembles and structures her teams, the overlaps present across the multiple teams she leads, and a reflection on the acceleration of telemedicine and more. Finally, Katya discusses the process of onboarding during the pandemic, orienting herself at the company, and the trends in technology that are on her radar. Katya Andreessen, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, it's a pleasure. Well, I thought we'd begin. Uh, you are the Chief Digital and Analytics Officer at Cigna. And I think most people here would probably have some familiarity with Cigna. But just to make sure that we're sort of filling any in any gaps, perhaps provide a, a thumbnail sketch as to the, the business you're in, if you would. So Cigna is a global health service company. And our mission is to make healthcare more affordable, predictable, and simple. I think we all agree healthcare needs to be all of those things. And technology is obviously a key pathway to achieving that. So we work to serve over 185 million customer relationships and counting around the world. You may know Cigna uh, for your health insurance or perhaps Express Scripts, which is part of our business, or MD Live. Uh, but we have many parts of our business, but all of them are aimed at the same thing, which is creating a more integrated experience for people so that they can live healthier. That's a great overview. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I mentioned you're the chief digital and analytics officer. Talk a bit about that role and the two sides of that, if you would. So I'm I, so glad you asked the question that way. And I, I did not even set you up to do that <laughs> because to me, digital and analytics absolutely need to go together and they very much inform each other. And there are two sides of an innovation engine, really, that we need to power better healthcare. So the way I think about it is digital is important because we all want healthcare to come to us, right? I think a lot of the digital innovation that's taken place in healthcare, which I'll talk about, I'm sure, throughout this conversation, has just been really focused on moving the status quo from analog to digital. What we really wanna do is work backward from the customer and put the healthcare experience in digital channels in a way that can wrap around them. So a huge part of my team's objective is to create digital first relationships with all our stakeholders, certainly our customers, uh, medical providers, uh, our health plan clients and physicians and so on and so, so forth, because the more digital relationships we have, the better able we are able to do what I just described. What we want to do then is to put in front of them experiences, whatever the site of care 
whatever the resource, that are data informed. Because what you might need for your healthcare is different than what I need for my healthcare, right? And so we need data to make sure what we're delivering is relevant and precise and personalized and effective. The way these two things, though, work together in a way that becomes a flywheel that gets me really excited about my role is, on the one hand, we are helping more and more people into our digital ecosystem. Once they are there, we are able to use our data to put the right experiences in front of them, but we're able to learn all the time. The great thing about digital channels is you can test and learn what works, what is effective, with which types of people, at what time, through which channels, right? And that generates more data. And then that added data can go back into the models, right? And you, become, you can become more personalized and more precise over time, which is gonna yield better outcomes back through the digital channels. So it's this, what I like to call sort of a virtuous circle or virtuous cycle in which the digital experience gets better and better all the time because of data, but the data gets better and better all the time because of the digital experience. So my role is to lead the digital and analytics teams to make all that happen in an integrated way for the enterprise. That's a great description. I love the way in which you describe the symbiosis and the, the, the feedback loops between them. I, I, very, very powerful indeed. For an organization as large as Cigna, just a mammoth uh, company, I can only imagine the quantity of data that is collected. So the possibilities as to you know where you're collecting data and what you're drawing insight uh, must seem like it's infinite at times. How, how do you think about assembling kind of a broader data strategy so that you're pointing this, this giant engine um, in, in the right directions? How, how do you contemplate that, please? Oh, it's such a terrific question because I've been around long enough to remember how excited everyone got about big data with the, with the emphasis on big. And the problem with generating lots and lots of data is it doesn't necessarily translate into insights, right? We can have data, but what we really are after is data that helps us glean a better understanding of something, right? And that, that helps us understand what is the next best action we should be taking. So our aim is not just you know, to say, well, we need a big quantity of data. And in fact, I think that you can quickly collapse under the complexity of models that uh, have too many inputs or too many data points. And so it's important to take a step back and say, okay, what are we really trying to accomplish for the end user? What do we need to know to do that? What are we learning along the way? And then how are we making sure that that data is getting more and more refined based on that learning. Now that sounds really basic, but it requires you to have a pretty deep understanding of business strategy, right? Not just data strategy. To me, data strategy is driven by your business strategy. What are you trying to accomplish for whom, in what context, and what data needs to inform that and what data will be generated by that? And then what are we going to do with that data that is gonna make us better at what we're trying to accomplish, whether it's being more precise, whether it's contributing to a feedback loop like we just discussed. And I find that it's common mistake is in, in data transformation 
there's a big emphasis on the data itself rather than what we're using it for or what it's going to accomplish. And that leads you to do things like put everything in a ginormous data lake, right? In the cloud, as if that's going to transform your industry. And it's really the hard work of asking ourselves what we're using it for, how that means it needs to be architected, what data patterns are, are going to be important, and how do we see all this coming together to, like I said, make us better at what we do, to see around corners, um, and to improve all the time. And that's really a rigorous strategy exercise that can't be answered by someone like me alone. I need to work with my business partners. I need to work with our strategists. I need to work with our data engineering team. And collectively, we can come to a good list of priorities in terms of our data strategy. Yeah, again, very, very nicely articulated. I, I, I love the the clear ways in which you described is simplifying what is a very uh, potentially arduous and complex set of activities. Um, so thank you for that. I, I wanted to ask you as well, you talked about some of the differences, uh, but also the symbiosis between the digital set of responsibilities you have and the analytic analytical or analytics uh, responsibilities that you have. Um, how do the teams that are under you reflect some of those differences and touch points as well? Are they Do they tend to be completely separated with some sort of gathering points between them? Do you have people like yourself who have a foot in both worlds? Um, how have you structured that? Oh, that's a very good question. I think I think the most important big picture concept to have about how we've chosen to structure things is that we have a horizontal orientation with respect to the enterprise. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is we've organized ourselves by the experiences or the insights that need to be delivered in many different places and many different lines of business, right? So this is this is very important concept, right? When it becomes to digital and data, and I'll, I could give you a hundred reasons, but let me give you the most powerful reason why this particular way of organizing is very important. It's because if you don't have part of your, a big part of your company, particularly the parts of the company that touch your customers or your stakeholders or your end users, then what's gonna happen is your, your digital and data strategy is gonna be nested within each line of business, right, vertically. But then what happens is that's not how your customers and stakeholders are typically gonna experience you, right? Um, I'm a human being, I may have my pharmaceutical coverage through our company, right? And maybe my health plan coverage, maybe I have an appointment with um, a physician through MD Live, for example, I don't wanna be logging in three different places. I want you to know who I am uh, as I move between experiences. And I want you to predict what I need based on a horizontal view of my data, right? So that's the most important thing is all of my teams have an enterprise orientation and are very focused on this sort of horizontal stakeholder-backed orientation. Now, to your question around, okay, well then how does that play out in terms of the digital team, the analytics team? 
Um, we certainly have teams that are focused on digital. Uh, we have uh, you know, digital delivery teams. We have product leaders who are focused on specific products or experiences. Um, we have folks who are very uh, focused on measuring what's happening across the digital funnel. Where do we have fallout? Uh, where do we need to make improvements in the experience? And then we have analytics teams who are focused on things like um, affordability and, and medical care, um, looking at data in terms of how competitive are we in our pricing. So there, there are teams that have certain specialties, right? What becomes magical though, is when you go to solve a problem, what you need to do is assemble people who represent many of those different skill sets into a virtual team. And that's really how innovation needs to take place is, is you need someone from engineering with someone at the table who deeply understands data with some clinical expertise, obviously, because we work in healthcare, digital expertise and so on and so forth. And you need this multidisciplinary team to come together from where they sit in the org structure um, to solve a problem for a customer. And that is what I like to quote, uh, what a number of people who study organizations call that process of getting together people who think differently. They, they call it creative abrasion. And I really like that term because guess what? It's harder to do things that way, but because you are getting all the different expertise and perspectives together, it's ever so much more powerful. And that abrasion of all the different viewpoints of all the different trade-offs, right? There's some people who are very focused on lowering costs of care. There are other people who are focused on quality of care. There are other people who are focused on delivery of care. There are other people um, who are focused on having the best possible customer experience, right? You want that productive debate because then you get to the best possible product. Yeah, I really like that. Very, very interesting. And I love that that phrase, uh, a creative abrasion and making sure that you are, in fact, getting the the, the different constituents and different points of view uh, out and and weighed in and and uh, weighed against each other. Uh, obviously, uh, what, what's uh, what what results on the back end? It sounds like at least uh, is much better for that abrasion. Um, mm -hmm. You've referenced a couple times. Uh, MD Live, which brings to mind some of the changes. I can only imagine the emphasis on that channel and its use has changed during the pandemic. And so I, I among a variety of things I have to imagine that have, and as well as accelerators of digital adoption, um, to say nothing perhaps of, of new expectations as a result of the personal supply chain changes each of, uh, of us are making in terms of how we how we shop how we get food uh you know how we experience media etc so many changes that have happened over the course of the past two plus years as a result yeah. of that I, I'd be interested in your reflections recognizing that you've been in role a little less than a year now um talk about what you have seen as some of the the changes that have been accelerated uh especially from a digital perspective, uh, as a result of this grand experiment that has been forced upon us over the past couple of years. Indeed, it has been forced upon us. It's <laughs> been a tremendous accelerant, I think, of digital adoption of things like, to use the MD Live example, virtual care. If you look at the statistics, it's pretty interesting. Pre-pandemic, there was a steady but slow uh, growth of telehealth. 
And then you saw it, you know, really the curve bent, you know, strongly upward during the pandemic. What's interesting is it's, it's come back down in certain areas, but then the change has persisted in others. And I think the most interesting piece of that I, I'd like to talk about is mental health. So the, the pandemic has had such a deleterious effect on mental health. It's personal to me. I have three teenagers slash young adults in my life, in my family, and they have really struggled. They have really struggled at this time. We have an incredible challenge um, with young folks, young adults, but everyone really, because every leader I've talked to in my professional network, my friends also say they are just seeing really serious burnout, fatigue, anxiety, depression on their teams. And when I go out and speak to our employer clients, they tell me it's the number one worry they have, benefits managers, it's getting mental health resources for their teams. So this is a huge area of focus for us and it makes me very glad that we had the MD Live acquisition recently because it gives us a supply of many, many virtual behavioral health specialists. And it's particularly well-suited, right, to digital-first, virtual-led care. Because in fact, 60% of the most recent mental health visits were virtual. So that's pretty extraordinary. And so I think it's just a, a, a very big positive. I think the other reason I get excited about this accelerant to digital is what we know about some of the challenges with mental health care. So there are a couple more sort of things that are rather stunning in terms of statistics, but more on the negative side. So the, the good news is we have more and more people able to access virtual care. On the downside, it still takes an average of 58 days to get care when you're looking for it. That's a very long time if you are having a tough time. The other thing we know is that it can take three, four, five, six different visits with different providers to find the right match. And I think, you know, if any of us have access mental health, you know what I mean. It's not, you don't necessarily have the right match right off the bat. And so when you look at that, it takes too long to get care. And when you get care, it might not be the right care. That is a, a huge challenge. And it makes me very glad that we have this sort of digital first virtual led approach to mental health services, because we can, we, we believe we can really address those pain points. And that's what my team is very focused on right now, because we can use digital channels to do really thorough assessments. So we can ask people, um, you know, what are your goals, right, in your mental health care? What are, you, what are you struggling with? How are you feeling right now? What type of provider do you want to work with? And what aspects are most important to you? Is it getting to someone right away? Is it to talking to someone who shares some of your experiences? Is it someone with a certain type of clinical expertise? You know, which uh, things that you're searching for are most important so that we can make that initial match better, right? We can provide like a subset that's better. And then if it doesn't work out, we can detect that, right? And we can come back and say, hey, we noticed you only went to two visits. You know, can we help you with some other options? So I'm very passionate about this um, because the pandemic, it, it did two things. It accelerated 
digital adoption like you were talking about, but it also made for a much bigger problem. So we have unprecedented demand. Um, we have care that isn't meeting the demand and we have a big opportunity to accelerate further in digital. Very interesting. I wanted to ask you also, you began, as I mentioned, um, just a, a little less than a year ago with the company. And um, as a result, of course, you, you began during the pandemic, your first, uh, first new job during these new, new ways of working. And, yeah. and I wonder what insights you have drawn uh, your prior employer, you know, Capital One, you'd been with pre-pandemic and into the pandemic. So you knew all your colleagues, you'd shaken hands, You there was some built-in trust, the culture was um, imparted on you just as you did with others uh, in ways that were very natural to how business was done circa December 2019 uh, or February 2020, just before we we went into the pandemic and, and, and uh, were met with the consequences of it. Talk about some of your own perspectives as a result of this new kind of experience of onboarding in a scenario where you don't have ready access to everyone in, in quite as real time as you did in past uh, roles and how that informs the way you think about um, doing those same sorts of things, imparting culture, making people who might be primarily working virtually feel as though they're part of something that's bigger than just themselves, just to name a few different thoughts. What comes to mind, please, Katya? Those are terrific questions. And I think the short answer is starting in a new company in the middle of a pandemic when you're not co-located is certainly challenging. <laughs> I think starting in any new culture is a big learning experience. What happens, of course, when you're remote is you don't have the ambient experience of being in the culture. You don't have the spontaneous, more casual opportunities to interact, observe, learn, connect, and develop relationships. And so I think the, the main thing I take from that personally is I just had to bring a lot more intentionality to creating that through Zoom, WebEx, <laughs> um, and, and virtual outreach. I just, I, I put a huge amount of emphasis on time, doing meet and greets, uh, getting to know people, but being a little more explicit in my questions that I might than I might have been if I had been, um, with, you know, in person with people. Meaning, I asked people, "Tell me about the culture. Tell me about what you think is most important for people being successful here. What are some things that haven't worked out uh, with bringing people on remotely?" Um, and and then getting to a trusting place with relationships where I could have people tell me if I was making a misstep or if I needed to adjust my um, process of sort of assimilating into my new role. And, you know, I think you just have to be very um, deliberate and not expect that taking on a new job remotely is about mastering the work itself. It's really building the network of relationships and the depth of understanding of a culture that is really the prerequisite to even getting the work done successfully. So I don't have a magic answer or 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 a perfect way to make that make it easier i just think you have to make it a tremendously large a part of your job for probably the whole first year it's not just getting up the learning curve in terms of subject matter it's getting up the learning curve in terms of culture and it's building those relationships and networks um 
once travel became possible, I've done a lot of it. <laughs> so I am spending a lot of time now getting to meet people in person. Those initial efforts helped, but I will say, I don't think there's any um, substitute at the end of the day than really getting time with people in person um, that is more spontaneous, more immediate, more intimate. It really is uh, important. Now, to the other half of your question, though, it's a really interesting one because one of the things that made it easier for me at Cigna is Cigna ha has had a, a, a very, I think, forward-leaning approach to sort of location. So there were already quite a few um, people in many different locations on the leadership team that I joined. And my team is in many different states. And so that was very helpful. In my old uh, role, everyone was very concentrated in a couple of geographic locations. Um, it's a little bit more of a level playing field uh, with folks being in so many different spots. Um, and I think that uh, Cigna had had some good practice at enabling people to work together when they were in different locations and when some people were remote and worked from home all the time. So it helped to come into a culture that has been friendly uh, toward that and also um, understands it well. I think there are two things I'd like to say about, okay, what do you do now when some people are back in the office, some aren't, some are in the headquarters, some are not, you know, what do you do with that? And I, I put forth two things. One, I like the way at Cigna we call it purposeful presence, which is it's important to come together uh, regularly in person when we have a specific reason for doing so and where togetherness is really important to either building connections or accomplishing work together. I don't think we should ever have a situation where people feel obligated to go in if they're just going to be on WebEx calls with people in other locations, right? If Unless they choose to do that. So I think back to this theme of intentionality, I think um, I am grateful to be in a culture that puts a real emphasis on that. But the other thing I wanna say is, I think what we're really talking about here is belonging. If you're new to a company, you're trying to establish a sense of belonging. If you're a remote person, you were trying to have a sense of belonging so that you feel fully a part of a team and you feel safe and welcomed and you feel uh, the psychological safety to do your best work. And belonging is not solely about where you are, right? It's not just about location. And so there's so much that leaders can do to build a sense of belonging that is really well beyond location, uh, you know, remote work and so on and so forth. And I spent a lot of time in my last role um, talking to people at the Neuro Leadership Institute, which I just find their work uh, exceptionally interesting. Um, they, it's really the science of um, things like belonging or psychological safety that they study. And you know, they, they gave me a lot of insight into how we're wired. And one of the things I learned about belonging is there are many different nuances of it. One is feeling trusted to work autonomously, right? That's interesting. That sort of feels like the opposite of belonging is independence, but actually a sense that you are trusted is really important to belonging. Um, an ability to be vulnerable uh, and feel you can show up as your authentic self is really important to belonging. Uh, taking time, a few minutes to establish a sense of connection, you know, even on a 
A WebEx call is very powerful um, and supports a sense of belonging. Um, and I'll throw out one more, uh, you know, having a learning culture, a test and learn culture, a culture that has a growth mindset also contributes to belonging. So there's so many aspects of this. And I think where we get in trouble is when we forget that, because then we might believe, hey, my team's back in the office, we're all set. Everyone must feel like they belong. And I think we're not the same people who we all were two years ago. And so we have to think about belonging really deeply no matter where we're located geographically. Very, very interesting insights you share. Um, I wanted to ask you also, uh, you've worked for large companies before, but just as an example, you know, your prior uh, firm was uh, sort of 25 to $30 billion in revenue. This one's 140 billion more than that. And so the scale you've already talked about, you know, the different parts of the business, your old firm had multi-business units as well. Uh, but the scale of those businesses obviously was different. I, I'm curious about your own reflections. There are certainly advantages and challenges at, at when you have achieved scale like that. I mean, there's the, your impact can be bigger than almost anywhere else, uh, but the challenges of navigating through such a large uh, apparatus can also come with its own vicissitudes of one sort or another. Uh, I wonder if you could just reflect on orienting yourself uh, within an organization of this sort of scale, since there are so few actually that, that, that are at this scale? Yes. So that's a really interesting question. I'm, you know, this is going to seem like a strange answer, but the metaphor I'm going to use is actually goes back to the beginning of my career, um, which I think really prepared me to navigate big companies but it's going to surprise you what the job was that I think best equipped me to do so, which was I was a foreign correspondent. <laughs> so at the beginning of my career, uh, I was a journalist uh, and I worked in Asia and Africa. And it was a it was a wonderful uh, and deeply humbling experience. Right. Because, you know, you are sort of thrust into a, a, a new country, a new situation. I worked for wire services, which meant it was not unusual to have to go write a story in a few hours about something in which I didn't have a whole lot of expertise. I didn't speak the language. I may not have the right contacts or network yet. And I had to make sense of something that was, that was large and overwhelming and new with its own unwritten rules um, and that were that were hard to see, right? And um, every new job at a big company feels a little bit like that, because you're you're coming in, especially when you're remote, like we were talking about before. But you know, you're coming in and you're trying to operate um, in this very large new country, right? And you're trying to strike a balance between, um, you know making a contribution, but also understanding the culture, building the relationships, understanding how things work. Really, anything you do needs to be within the larger context of how things work, why things happen as they do, the power structure that exists there, <laughs> the, uh, you know, and all the sort of idiosyncrasies uh, of any given organization. Um, and so, I, I know it seems probably like an unusual metaphor, but I, I think actually, whether you're new to a company or you've been in a, a company for a long time, the most powerful tool you can bring to operating in such a big structure is number one, curiosity, 
So I think if you come in and you're trying to do things and you're not curious about how things have been done in the past, what things other people are trying to do, <laughs> where your agenda might be clashing with someone else's, how things get done in the place, like you can never have enough knowledge about those things. And if you come with a sense of uh, a lack of humility and maybe a more judgmental, less curious mindset, I've seen so many people and particularly at big companies flame out. And the number one cause of flaming out is not being sufficiently curious about your colleagues, the culture, the agenda, um, what's going to make a difference, what can actually be accomplished. Like, and, and, and maybe being somewhere so long, you lose your curiosity and think you've got it all figured out. And in a, in a big company, you need so many relationships and so much insight and so much sensitivity to the art of influence in that particular culture to get anything done that if you're not curious, you're, you're just going to really be ineffective in my view. Um, I, think, I think the other thing I'll throw out there though is working in big companies, working at scale, it's really easy to get lost in, um, in celerity or in your area because it's just so big, right? The company's so big, it's overwhelming. You're focused in one particular part of the company and it's easy to fill your entire day with meetings <laughs> with the people at your company most of my day, you know, is like a lot of meetings with people I work with because you have to, to get things done. The problem is that can become very insular. You can become overly isolated within your team, or you can be overly uh, isolated within your company. And that's why companies fall victim to latent competitors, right? That they didn't even see coming because they had an echo chamber inside the company. And so I think the other really important thing is to always have a growing understanding of what other people outside your area are trying to accomplish, right? At the company, certainly, you can't be overly insular. That gets back to my point about curiosity, but you also have to get outside, even if it's you know virtually, your four walls with regularity. So like in a week, in a couple of weeks, I'm going on a business trip to Chicago and New York, why? I'm actually, it's not a signal event. Um, and I'm gonna be around people in it doing different innovation in the healthcare space. And I wanna go see what's outside. Um, and I'll come full circle on the answer to your question with my experience in journalism, which was the worst thing that could happen to you in journalism was that you got what we used to call native eyes. So you were working in another country and you've been there so long, you had lost the fresh eyes you brought when you first came to the situation and everything just seemed normal. <laughs> and you started reporting things like someone who was in the midst of it, which ends up in very inside baseball work, right? And, and I remember it happened to me a few times. My editors are from Hong Kong or Bangkok would be like, why would anyone care about this story? And I thought, oh, good point. You know, I've been here, <laughs> I've been here too long. I, I've been too insular. I don't recognize what is of interest anymore um, because I've lost that perspective. I've lost that productive 
um, ability to step back and really think about what I'm looking at. So it's it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience to work at scale in my view. It's hard, it's complicated. Um, you have to have really great influence skills, really strong EQ, but you can make such a difference because of the scale you're working at. And that's why I really love working at large organizations. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another fascinating aspect, uh, you mentioned one of the ones that I, I'm so glad that, it, that you raised it, the fact that you began as a journalist. You've also just had such a remarkably diverse set of experiences. You were an adjunct professor at American University. You've been a chief operating officer, a chief strategy officer. You've been a chief executive officer of a media company. Um, you, you, know, you, you now have digital and, and uh, analytical or analytics rather, excuse me, responsibilities. Uh, you know, there's, there, it's, it's remarkable the, the breadth of areas that you've covered. And I, I think I'm hearing you say that it's that ongoing curiosity and the desire to have like a, a new perspective on things to test yourself, to, to, to push yourself mm -hmm. so that the learning curve remains very steep. Though no yeah. doubt, I imagine you're bringing collectively all those past experiences. You've already talked about the ways in which you're leveraging your past experience as a journalist in some really creative ways, for example. Um, as, that, as you reflect upon the many roles that you've taken on and the different personas, different chief roles that you've had, et cetera, um, has it been sort of a kind of the, the, the uh, actuating what you just described in terms of continuing to have that, uh, that, that new set of perspectives, that new set of challenges and so forth? Yes, I, a couple thoughts. So I get a que the question a lot because I've had a very curvy path, right? I mean, I started in journalism, then I went into market research, then I went into marketing, then I went into technology, then I went into like management in very large companies after having worked at very small companies. So it has been a curvy path. I will say there's a clear through line, which you put your finger on already, which is I am deeply curious about other human beings, what makes them tick, their context. Um, and that is the through line of my career. So when you're a journalist, you're trying to understand all that to tell an accurate story. When you're a marketer, you're trying to understand all of that to influence someone. When you are uh, leading operations or you're leading strategy or you're being a CEO, you need that to lead effectively because you need that insight into your own team. Like you're, you, you are using that insight to motivate people, but you're also using that insight to drive really strong product market fit, right? It's like at the heart of business strategy. And then certainly at Capital One and now at Cigna, my role is very much at the intersection of that, right? It's, it's how it does technology or digital uh, and that is analytically driven, that is data informed. How do we bring together those pieces to make things that matter to people um, who are our customers, right? And so to me, there's a very clear through line, um, even though it's been a very curvy path. So I think it's a deeply wonderful thing to understand your through line. And I would just advise everyone to try to think about what it is and because it may not be what you think. And it's really only discerned looking backwards than when you're living it forward. Like if you asked me 15 years ago, I don't, I don't know. I would, I just swallowed my curiosity. That'd be the second thing I say would say is I have found that if you follow your curiosity, um, you are so motivated to learn all the time, which makes you pretty good at what you're going to go to, right? So it's like, if you find something so fascinating that you just want to think about it all the time, 
that might be a really good next step in your in your career. Um, and then I think the other thing I just want to say as a woman in particular is I think um, maybe everyone does this a little bit, but I think women do this most of the time is you feel you have to be completely qualified for the next step before you go make that next step. And I like to joke, you know, I, I was unqualified for every job I ever had. Um, <laughs> but, but what I'm really saying is every job I ever took was a stretch. And I knew I could figure it out, even if I had never figured out that particular thing before. And so I just think it's really important um, not to make prior specific experience the prerequisite to pursuing your next opportunity. Ask yourself, do you have the raw material? Uh, because that's good enough in my view, because if you have the raw material and you're interested and you have enthusiasm, there's really no stopping you. If you have a growth mindset, if you're willing to learn, if you're willing to take risks, if you're willing to learn from your mistakes. And I just wanted to say that because I, if I could say something to my younger self, it would be that. And, you know, there's all this talk about imposter syndrome, again, particularly with women. So, you know, you, you get, you take that leap, you get in the new role and then you're like, gosh, is anyone, is everyone going to figure out, like, I have no business having this role. And I've had that feeling before, um, but I've come to decide that that feeling is a sign that I'm a little bit scared. I'm doing something new. I'm a little bit uncomfortable. And that means I'm stretching myself. And that's exactly what I want to be doing. So instead of having discomfort make me feel like, oh, I'm not qualified to do this. I'm an imposter. I feel the discomfort. And I feel like I'm at my top performance when I'm like totally uncomfortable about 49% of the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I go for that. Like, am I scared 49% of the time? It's not much fun when it's over half the time, but you know, am I really having to stretch and learn here? Um, oh, that doesn't mean I'm an imposter. That means I'm stretching. And so I, I, I like to joke. I, I don't call myself an imposter. I call myself a great pretender uh, because pretend is Latin for to stretch forth, right? So if we're great at stretching forth, we can be great pretenders. Um, and that's what I think we should all aspire to be. That's really great. And what a, what a great, I mean, it, um, I, I love that as sort of part of the secret to your success that you've, you followed your curiosity, you, you overcome the, the fear of, of, of the so-called imposter syndrome. You've, mm -hmm. you've enjoy the challenges, you seek situations where you are um, uh, uncomfortable a bit because you know, that's where you're going to be stretched. I, a great set of insights there. I really appreciate you sharing, and and especially uh, meaningful to hear your perspectives as a as a woman in technology, a woman in leadership more generally speaking. Perhaps for others who might wish to to follow in your footsteps, some some really sound advice that you were offered there. So thank you for that, Katya. I wanted to ask you uh, here at the the close of our conversation, um, trends that excite you uh, as you are immersed now in in digital trends and and uh, contemplating the best means of. Uh, driving uh, analytics in, in an appropriate direction to, to, to offer better conclusions and ultimately better decisions for the for the business to undertake to to ha to to, to uh, foster greater experiences for the customers you serve. Um, talk a bit about some of the trends that really excite you as you look to the future. So I think there are a few things. I mean, one is obviously medical innovation. Um, there's so many interesting things going on there. Um, I think in, in particular, I'm interested in, uh, I'm wearing my Apple watch right now, but I think 
uh, wearables, remote patient monitoring, um, the ability to passively collect information on people and use that to help make them healthier is extremely exciting. And especially when you're thinking about digital first virtual led care, um, that innovation is going to be incredibly powerful. The third area of innovation I wanted to say I'm excited about is actually we're in the golden age of neuroscience and we are understanding behavioral economics, uh, you know, what motivates people, how we're wired. Um, we understand all that better than we ever have before. So why do I bring that up? Um, you know, you probably thought I was just going to bring up a bunch more digital stuff. I think that the promise of digital, it's, it's an ideal uh, channel to engage someone and try to help them make better choices, help them through illness, help them navigate their way to assuaging their lower back pain or um, you know, talking to a mental health professional. All of these things at their root, we're trying to use a digital channel to influence someone in a way that makes them better off, right? And to influence someone to help them like eat healthier or seek mental health resources or do their physical therapy uh, or to take their medicine on time. All of those things are really about understanding how we're wired. How do we make decisions? How do we, you know, for what people through which channel at what time needs to be said or offered that is gonna lead someone down a healthier path, right? And so you think of that, and then you think of things like remote patient monitoring, or you think about digital, like what an exciting constellation of things, right? We have the means to be at the tip of someone's finger all the time. We have the means to tell how they're doing physiologically, um, even mentally. Like you could now use um, voice technology to detect someone's level of stress, right? And, and you pair that with the science of how to engage people and help them better. And I just think that's a powerful trifecta that makes me so optimistic about the future. And it's really why I came to the company because I really can't think of a more important thing to be working on right now than people's physical and mental health and to be using innovation, whether it's you know technological uh, or in terms of our understanding of human beings to, to have that innovation be pointed at this really important mission. So to me, like it, it's a big reason I came now to Cigna. I don't think there's been a better time to try to seize this opportunity and really leap ahead. Because the last thing I'll say is too much of the current innovation is pointed at helping people navigate the system we have. And what we really need to do is use digital to reassemble the system around the individual. And I don't think we've been in a better position to do that um, than this present moment. Well, Katya Andreessen, it's really inspiring. Your 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 own catholicity is really on on display here. The your breadth of experiences and knowledge, uh, it's inspiring, frankly, to see how your uh, your your uh, synapses fire and the, the, the various <laughs> things that where you have experience. I, I the, the the insights you draw from 
from your current experience and experiences and past ones, it's really just, it's remarkable to hear the stories you have to tell and your own diagnosis of what's worked well for you, uh, the pathways in your career, the things that, that you draw inspiration from. Um, I really appreciate you sharing those. It's been a great conversation. Yes, thank you so much for having me.